Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 10 years experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Su Lin Wong, a correspondent for The Economist in Hong Kong. Su Lin and I were trainees at Reuters about seven years ago, both starting with the news agency in the Chinese mainland after a brief training in Singapore. Su Lin has covered a lot of exciting stories since then, including the 2019 Hong Kong protests, as well as traveling extensively along China's border with North Korea. She's one of the few foreign journalists to have been based in Shenzhen in southern China, where she opened a Reuters bureau and a Financial Times bureau in quick succession. She'll tell us how she got from growing up in Australia to where she is today, covering China for The Economist. Doing the podcast, I've picked up some terms and phrases that I go on to integrate into my everyday speech, like the term ground-truthing for verifying the real situation on the ground, which I first heard Manga Bay's Rhett Butler use in episode 49. Sulin will talk about the journalist's holy trinity, which is a perfectly succinct descriptor of the sort of luck you need in journalism. She'll explain more, but I'm definitely going to be stealing that one. Just one note on jargon. Sulin refers to a conference called COP. That's the shorthand name of the annual United Nations climate change negotiations that take place every year. But to a normal human, you might have no idea what we're talking about. So when you hear us talk about COP, that's what we mean. That's it. Short and sweet intro this time. This is really a great interview with some great stories. Please enjoy. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Sulin. Thanks very much for having me, Jake. To warm up a little bit, if you could set the scene and let us know where you are geographically and then the physical space around you and a little bit about what your past week of work has been like. So I am currently sitting in my apartment. I have a little home office. I guess that is a COVID invention. Uh, I'm looking out the window into lots of high-rise apartment buildings, which I guess is a common sight in Hong Kong. And my past week has been a busy one. I filed a couple of stories and it's sort of summer becoming autumn, but still very hot here. So a bunch of friends and I went out on a junk, as we call them in Hong Kong. It was like a very surreal Hong Kong experience with, you know, a bunch of sort of corporate Hong Kong types and then some Instagram influencers who were trying to sell high heels on the boat. <laughs> uh, but I guess that's that's Hong Kong for you. That's funny. Yeah, I've been out on some of those junks. It's been a long time, but it's nice, yeah, being in Hong Kong during the pandemic. There was some nature stuff to do. Yeah, no complaints. So then a major point of the podcast is to give people some idea of how journalists got to where they are today. And I like to start way back at the beginning. If you could tell us a little bit about uh, where you were born, what growing up was like, and if anything planted the seed of interest in journalism or living abroad early on for you? So I was born and raised in Sydney, Australia. My parents were born and raised in Malaysia and migrated to Australia before my brother and I were born. And we are ethnically Chinese, so I guess there's always been a connection to Southeast Asia and then 
China through, I guess, language and culture. But none of that really, I guess, was something I thought that much about during my childhood. It was just like a nice childhood in Sydney. In terms of if there were any early signs that I might become a journalist, I guess I loved writing and I loved reading as a kid. And I started a journal, I think, when I was six years old. I still remember we went on like a weekend family trip to Canberra and I meticulously took a diary that I think I still have somewhere. And then one story my mom tells me now in hindsight, because I think we don't come from a family of journalists. I don't think, you know, in Chinese families, journalism is not like a profession that is revered, I think, in the way that it is in, in sort of some Western families. Sure. Um, and so there were, there were never like aspirations I would go up to be a journalist uh, coming from my parents. But one thing my mom says in, in hindsight was I was a very, very curious kid. And every time I would like see something that I wanted to investigate, I would go and investigate it. So she said one thing I used to always do is I would go and I'd go up to like other toddlers who were crying and I would stare at them and try to figure out what was happening. <laughs> so I guess I was always very curious and liked to write, but I, I never really had an idea of, of being a journalist when I was really little. Sure. So do you go on and do any journalism in like high school or, or when does it start for you? So I took lots of English and comparative literature and Latin and writing in high school. Like that was definitely what I was interested in. And then I chose to take a year off after high school. And my idea was to go to China and teach English and improve my Mandarin. So growing up, we spoke English at home, but we were sent to Saturday Chinese school, which we hated. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess it wasn't until high school, I went to a high school that had a lot of Asian Australians and a lot of my friends spoke their heritage language very well. And I think it was then that I sort of realized, oh, it would be actually quite cool if I could speak Mandarin better than I do. So after high school, I decided I'd try and get a job teaching English in China and then just on the side, like, improve my Mandarin. So I went to China and thought it would be okay, like, thought I'd just be able to figure it out uh, and find a job. It was really difficult. I'm pretty sure it got to the point I was, like, counting the number of job interviews I'd gone to. I think it was something like more than 50, and I just could not get a job. Whoa. That was, I'm going to date myself, but that was back in 2007. So... It was a bit of, like, the Wild West. So I, I think not having a university degree probably held me back a little bit, but I think what really held me back was, at the time, most people wanted to employ white people to teach their kids English. So, uh -huh. yeah, that was a challenge. And in the end, I think there was some, like, website called Dave's ESL Cafe or something, and I applied for a bunch of jobs there, and I got two offers, one in Inner Mongolia and one in rural Hunan province in central China. And at the time I knew nothing about either place, but I decided Inner Mongolia sounded like it was going to be cold, so I <laughs> picked the job in rural Hunan. It was really incredible. Um, 
we were in this sort of abandoned resort in the middle of fireworks territory. So it's there are lots of fireworks factories there and I think it's where a lot of the world's fireworks are made. Mm. We were on a lake where I think the Chinese water skiing team trained and the idea was that kids from Changsha, the provincial capital, would come to Red Horse Lake, was what the school was called, and they would be immersed in an English language environment for a week or two and then go back to their school or I guess they would sometimes come in their holidays. And so the idea was there would be like dining hall that they could like order food in in English and there would be formal lessons but also we would like do sport with them and things um but Hmm. it was also I think like a a real insight into China I'm pretty sure there was some sort of dodgy things going on with (laughs) the owners of the school and so I remember taking the kids to class in the morning and like there'd be vomit on the paths because you know they sort of the higher-ups at school had brought out local government officials the night before and they'd all gotten extremely drunk and thrown up on the very path that the kids would go to school on. And sometimes, like, the electricity would cut or the water would cut. Uh, who knows why? But, yeah, that was... It was amazing. It was, like, really, really fascinating. And I actually was, I guess, more similar in age to a lot of the assistant teachers who were undergrad students majoring in English at nearby universities who would come out and do an internship at the school. And so I got to know a lot of them and sort of went travelling with some of them after their hometowns. Like one of them lived in Ningxia, way up north in China in like Mm -hmm. a very rural area. So it was just a really incredible year and I fell in love with China and then decided I'd love to come back one day somehow. So I went home to university. I studied Asian studies and law as an undergrad in Australia and sort of just immersed myself in campus life for the first three years. And then I sort of knew that I probably didn't want to become a lawyer and I was able to basically take three years off I went on exchange to the US first and then I was very fortunate and got a scholarship to study and work in China. So after my first three years at university, I spent the next three years in America and China before going back for my final year, finishing my degree and then applying for jobs in journalism. But it was in those three years during my degree when I was mostly in China that I really was able to improve my Chinese and do some internships and freelance and really uh, get a taste of journalism. And I I absolutely loved it. It was, I sort of look back and think of, I sort of feel like it's like falling in love. Like you just feel it in your gut. Like this is what I want to do. This feels right. And so when I went back to Australia to finish my university degree, I, I think I actually applied for one job in, like, management consulting. And during the job interview, (laughs) the um, interviewer was like, you know what, I just think you should go and be a journalist. It does not sound like you're very interested in being a management consultant. (laughs) And so I was very lucky and and got a graduate job at Reuters with you. And so we um, met for the first time when we were training in Singapore in 2014. Right. 
a lot to unpack in there. I guess to go back, you took three years off. I guess I kind of knew that, but how, I mean, people talk about gap years and people talk about taking one year off in the middle of school, but three years off is a lot of time. Uh, what, what was that all about? Yeah, I guess it's maybe a little bit, it was a little bit different for some of my friends and me who were studying Asian studies. So I was at the Australian National University and at the time the Australian government was really trying to encourage university students to get experience on the ground in Asia. And they, they sort of released various prominent white papers and had launched these sort of high-profile scholarships. And so there was a lot of encouragement at the time to like take time to go anywhere, basically. I'm pretty sure it was like there were 37 different countries you could apply to for scholarships in Asia, all the way from like Brunei to Mongolia. And wow. so it felt like there was quite a bit of support, both from the government and the university. And it just sort of worked out that way. And honestly, I don't think I would be a journalist, but for those few years and the support I got from the Australian government and my university, because I also was able to get some credit for what I was doing in China and America. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, study abroad is how I got my start in China, my junior year. And, you know, if I hadn't done that, I probably would have never moved there. Just one other thought I had, like, to add to that. I think at the time, I sort of look back now maybe with rose-tinted glasses. I think, you know, at the time it was kind of a scary decision because a lot of my friends who were not studying Asian studies and law in Australia, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the system, but it's quite common for people to study law as an undergraduate degree and it's very common to do a double degree. So you would do, say, commerce and law or arts and law or science and law or Asian studies and law. And so a lot of my friends were not doing Asian studies and law and um, were doing some other combination with law. And so it was like, you know, I could see all of them graduating and getting jobs. Um, So it wasn't necessarily an easy decision, but I think because I knew I didn't want to become a lawyer and I felt like if I could make it work financially and in terms of credit and things, this was the time for me to try to figure out what I wanted to do with my career rather than, you know, start as a lawyer. I think, you know, once you graduate and start working, it becomes much harder to change career paths for all kinds of reasons. And so if there are any young listeners out there, if you do have the opportunity to take time off during university to explore potential career paths, I would highly recommend it because it feels like the opportunity costs are lower if you do it then. Right, yeah. And uh, you don't always realize it at the time. To I don't know, to me back then, like a year felt like an eternity. Right. I think I was out of work for like nine months after I graduated and it felt like, oh, my life is going off track. And in retrospect, it was a blip. Yeah. And actually, I do remember this. I remember I got a job at the Beijing Olympics in 2008, just as sort of a tour guide for Lenovo. And basically, I was going to miss taking contract law in university And it just felt like such a difficult decision. I was like, do I go and work at the Beijing Olympics or do I take contracts? And I remember agonizing over it. 
And in the end, I think one of the oldest students who lived in my dorm was like, Sulin, this is insane. Just take contracts next year and go and work at the Beijing Olympics. And I did do that. And it felt like such a big decision at the time. And now that I'm sort of older looking back telling the story, I'm very, very glad I I took that older student's advice. (laughs) For sure. And what did you do in the U.S. out of curiosity? I was just on exchange at UC Santa Barbara, which was also amazing. It was like really, it had nothing to do with China. I was, yeah, just sort of, I wanted to go somewhere in America and that was like where I was placed and I lived in a vegan clothing optional housing cooperative and I took (laughs) pornography as a class. And actually, I think they didn't call it pornography, they called it special topics in film. So on your transcript, it doesn't appear as pornography. But I also took a bunch of Asian American studies classes and Chicano studies classes. And it was the first time I had ever studied any kind of subject like that. And it really, in some ways, was even more impactful than studying the impact of pornography on our society. And I think sort of also maybe in hindsight, got me more and more interested in my own heritage and being Asian and Australian. And it it got me interested in maybe wanting to spend more time in China or other parts of the world outside of Australia. And uh, in all that chronology, I mean, prior to joining Reuters, what was the first piece of journalism you think you did? Hmm, That's a good question. I think my first piece of journalism would have actually been at COP in Copenhagen in 2009. So I took climate change science and policy in my second year of university and there was a a sort of follow-up course where we actually went to COP with our professor and the assignment was, like, go to COP and do a research project and write it up. And uh, a lot of my classmates were environmental science majors or sort of were in the environmental science school at our university. And I had no background. I'm pretty sure it was like someone who lived in my dorm was taking the class and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Like, I'd like to learn more about climate change science and policy. And so I signed up and really liked it and then was you know fortunate enough to get into this follow-up course but it meant that like you know a lot of my classmates were, go- were going to in- investigate you know various like the clean development mechanism or red plus and sort of very technical aspects of climate change negotiations mm-hmm. whereas i remember vividly at the time being like wow i really i'm really sort of like out of my league here i don't really know what i'm doing and started Googling a few weeks before COP started. And I found that there was this whole, like, youth NGO movement involved in the climate change negotiations, and they had actually... They called themselves the Youngos, I guess, youth NGOs, and they had a pre-COP caucus for a few days before the official climate change talk started. And so I think I got in touch with a few of them, like, when I was still in Australia, and they were like, you should just come along to this, and... So basically I attached myself to the youth NGO movement um, from their pre-caucus throughout COP and then afterwards and then wrote my research paper on 
how they thought about their role in international climate change negotiations and the sort of politics of young people from the global north versus the global south and how different people thought about their theory of change and impacting negotiations. And so there were lots of different types of young people and there were people who had sort of travelled overland from Australia to Copenhagen as a way to make a statement about carbon emissions from flying and they were on a hunger strike during COP, all the way to sort of young people on the other end of the spectrum who were very much trying to like get into the room and be a part of the negotiations. And it was really fascinating to sort of watch all the different approaches. And so I wrote my report on the youth movement in climate change negotiations. And I guess looking back in some ways, it really was a piece of journalism. I sort of did a lot of reporting. I was on the ground with them for a lot of it. Also did research and interviews and at the time, I didn't really think it was journalism, but looking back, maybe that was my first piece. Sure, sure. So you do those three years studying in the U.S., studying in China, doing a bit of writing, and then you go back, you finish your final year, and then you go straight into Reuters? Is that right? Yes. I actually hadn't graduated when we met in Singapore because the Australian academic year is from January to December. But the Reuters program started in September, if I'm remembering correctly. So I think I like, I was writing my thesis at the time. So I guess somehow I figured it out. And so I went to Singapore, but then we only were there for two weeks. And then the rest of you went on to your first postings and I went back to graduate. And then I didn't, I, I think I worked in the Sydney Bureau for a little bit and then went to Shanghai in January of 2015. And, yeah, this is where we met, and uh, we were both, quote-unquote, graduate trainees, uh, which is a program I don't believe exists anymore at Reuters, but where they used to give you, like, uh, nine months of, I mean, training, but really it's on-the-job experience, and they rotate you between the different desks and, and assignments, although I don't know about for you, but they just didn't make good on that at all for me. Um, and I only did finance and economy. Uh, yeah, I, it definitely felt like they were just like plugging holes by the time our cohort came along. I remember I arrived in Shanghai and the bureau chief was like, finally, you're here and you will be our new stock market correspondent. And I was like, <laughs> stock markets, what are those? <laughs> And um, I, like, did it for a few months, and it was... I was just really bad at it. And I think it got to the point where they also realised I was quite bad at it. And luckily, they switched me with someone just before, like, there was a massive market crash that became, like, front-page news around the world. So, uh, yeah, it was probably great for Reuters that they didn't have me covering that at the time. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I remember doing like yeah, the currency reports and things like that. Um, Do you remember coming to? Sh- I, th- I feel like you came. You were in Beijing at the time. You came to Shanghai for the auto show. Yeah. Do you yeah. remember this? And there was like the sort of senior autos correspondent had created this like lengthy Excel document with like color coded about like, and then we were told to like wear running shoes and bring tinned food so we could like run from press conference to press conference in this enormous 
exhibition hall where there was the sort of annual auto show or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was like the event of the year on the automotive beat, which is what I ended up doing. So, yeah, I definitely remember that. And I remember that spreadsheet and, yeah, trying to figure out where to go and, like, I don't know. In retrospect, it's a little bit ridiculous, you know, running up to Chang'an maybe and, uh, and yeah, snapping, sending out headlines on, like, their sales projections or whatever and then running to the next one and basically doing the same thing. Um, yes. I mean, so. and then they had me doing it as well who didn't even cover autos, so it was, like, in some ways even worse for me. But I remember I packed tin tuna. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, how did you find it at first? I mean, wire services, like, was it what you expected? Is it, uh, yeah, was it difficult to adapt to? Was it, how did you find it, this uh, Reuters graduate scheme? I really liked it. So, yeah, I agree with you that it wasn't like we were rotating beats every six weeks and got to experience every aspect of Bureau Life, which I think maybe was how the program was originally designed. But I still feel like we trained in Singapore for a bit. I was in Sydney and then I was in Shanghai. And in Sydney, I was sort of covering general news. And then I was on the stock market beat for a while. And I covered the weather and I covered autos and company news. And I started doing some economics reporting where I would like go out to towns and cities and villages around Shanghai to write about sort of various economic trends. It was a really great year to get a taste of like many, many aspects of working at Reuters and being a wire reporter, which I think now when I look back on it is a sort of very particular type of reporting. And yeah, I I guess increasingly the, the further along I get in my career, the more I feel like there's 100 different types of journalism and Reuters sort of gave me the opportunity to experience a few of those 100 different types. One other thing I guess I would add is I really really loved the Reuters Shanghai Bureau when I was there and I remember one person describing it as um, oh it feels like we just like are all mates and we all just like come and hang out with our friends and we incidentally do some work Um, and so it was amazing to so early on in my career be in a newsroom like that and I actually like am in touch with a lot of people from that bureau to this very day like I'm having drinks tomorrow night with uh, my desk mate who I sat next to in that year and who I learned so much from just in terms of like how she did her phone interviews and how she thought about her stories. So I also, I feel very lucky that, that I had that experience. So, yeah, this is when we know each other. And so our, our paths from here, you know, share some similarities that we do the nine months and then they have to place you. And I think everybody from our year got placed and uh, how, how did that work out for you and where do things go from there? So I remember a lot of the grad trainees would try to get on the politics and general news team. And it was like the most popular beat. And very early on, I feel like managers of the trainee program were like, do not try to get a job on the politics and general news team because like, right. you're not going to get a job and you might not even get a job at Reuters. So 
be strategic. Like, basically, I think they were just like, oh, my goodness, we can't have everyone we recruit join the politics team. And I think I remember being really terrified at the time that I wasn't going to get a permanent position. I don't know if you felt it, but I feel like they, like, instilled the fear of God in us um, (laughs) a little bit. So I was like, oh, okay, I definitely cannot try and get a job on the politics team. Like, what else could I do? And... After my experience covering markets, I was like, no, 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 cannot do markets again. And commodities and energies sounded very technical and a bit like sort of beyond me. So then the other two big beats at Reuters, at least the way it was structured at the time that we were grads, were the um, companies team, company news team and the economics team. And I feel like you got the job on the company's team and so the economics team was left. Not that actually, I shouldn't say it like that. I I actually remember speaking to Pete Sweeney at the time who who became my boss and I was like, I would love to join your team. Um, And I really did want to join the team because I thought, you know, having some experience covering economics would be good, especially because I was mostly interested in politics and society and I had done a little bit of business reporting in my grad year so I thought it would be sort of a great first permanent job and very luckily he hired me. Yeah that's great and yeah I mean I remember not having many openings and it was basically like a job on the company's team because, uh, yeah, Sam Shen uh, is probably the guy who took over stock markets right before the market <laughs> crash. He had been exactly. the auto reporter. <laughs> so it was like this or, or maybe the economics team. And I, I remember always meeting with Jason Subler and, you know, they had one thing in mind. Like people kind of assume if you've done one thing that you want to keep doing it. And I was like, I don't want to keep doing economics. I've been at you know, China Economic Review for two, three years. And I do look back and I'm a bit like, uh, I, I do wonder if that was the the right decision <laughs> because uh, after two years on the auto beat, I had written every auto story that I wanted to write and felt like I was pretty done. Whereas I feel like economics, you know, you don't run out of stories as easily. I'm sure Nori would disagree with me and, you know, there were plenty of stories still to write, but yeah. Well, I mean, so I think the economics beat at the Beijing Bureau of Reuters at the time was was an interesting beast because we had to do all the monthly data. And so I feel like there was this complicated roster and basically the deal was like for two weeks of every month, I would be like sitting at my desk, pumping out stories on GDP, PMI, CPI, you name it, we wrote it. And then for the other two weeks, I was told, like, you can just, like, go out around the country and find, like, interesting economic stories about China to tell. And it was really amazing. Like, I went to so many remote places that I would never go to otherwise and, you know, reported on all kinds of things, like the sort of rural e-commerce push by the tech giants and people returning to their farms because they were laid off and sort of what that meant for consumer spending. I like went up to like the northeast of China and looked at what was happening with all the coal miners who had been laid off. It was really, really great. And then I also realised that our bosses were automating more and more of the economics beat, more and more of the economic data. So I was literally being automated out of my job. <laughs> so I was like, I have got to change beats. Like, this is terrible 
I'm like soon going to lose my job to like AI. And actually, do you remember during our two weeks in Singapore, they showed us some stories that were being written by like AI or whatever the term is. They had like some sports stories and some, I think, company earnings and some stock market stories. And they got us to guess like which stories had been written by a computer and which had been written by a Reuters journalist. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I ended up on this this one of these teams that was increasingly automated and so I also felt like I needed to get off the team sooner rather than later. And so was quite lucky that there was an opening, I guess like a year or two into my time at the Beijing Bureau covering the China North Korea relationship and I realized that that was probably good. It was going to be harder to automate that beat. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, the China-North Korea thing, it was kind of a a floating thing that it wasn't really a full-time job, right? Like Mega was doing it and then, you know, got passed to you. But uh, it wasn't like a well-defined, like, this is your job to do, like, uh, right? Yeah. So I think what happened was I was like, still officially on the economics team and I still was officially like on the monthly data roster writing my PMI stories and then sometimes I would just like go to the border of uh, the Chinese border of North Korea when I wasn't on my data roster and do some stories and so initially you're right it sort of was an ad hoc thing and then I feel like more and more news was coming out about North Korea and its relationship with the US and China, and there was just like more and more appetite for it. And so eventually it became more and more of my beat. And I think there was some of our colleagues left on the politics team. And so there was also more and more of a need for people to cover like politics and general news. So I sort of eventually was doing a bit of economics and a bit of politics and general news. Sure. And yeah, I'd be interested to gossip afterwards, but it seems like since we've left, like, the lines are all getting crossed now. I remember it felt very siloed back when we first joined, like, you know, people did their thing and just that thing, and I feel like that sounds like it's finally breaking down. So, so yeah, where where did things go from there? How How long do you do that before you make your next move, which is to the Reuters Shenzhen Bureau, right? Right. So I think I was in the Beijing bureau for maybe three years or so. But after about two years, like as I saw my job getting automated on the economics team, I started sort of trying to figure out my next move. And at the time, I really wanted to do something totally unrelated to China and started actually applying for a bunch of writers jobs in Nairobi just because at the time there were quite a few going, but I didn't get any. And the Beijing bureau chief said, well, would you be interested in moving to Shenzhen, which is, you know, on the border of Hong Kong? And I was like, absolutely not. I am not interested (laughs) in moving to this, like, manufacturing wasteland with not a single other foreign correspondent covering, like, factories. Yet somehow he convinced me. And so I moved in, I guess, mid-2018 and opened the Reuters Shenzhen Bureau, was the first foreign correspondent based there for a major international publication. It was a really, really amazing experience in hindsight. 
Was there was there a quote unquote news assistant or something there? Because I was looking back at some of your clips, and sometimes it would say Shenzhen Newsroom at the bottom, and I was like, "Who is Shenzhen Newsroom?" I thought it was just one person. Like, um, I I think they let me hire an intern. So I had a few interns, but for sort of more sensitive political stories, they were just the Shenzhen Newsroom. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. and. So how do you even start on something like that? So you you get to Shenzhen, you know, nobody, it's a new position that didn't exist before. So what do you do when, like, there's no model to follow? <laughs> you just have to, like, start fresh. That's a very good question. I don't really remember what I did. I think I got in touch with a lot of local journalists, and I got my friends in Beijing to connect me to their friends in Shenzhen. And, yeah, I just sort of slowly tried to figure things out. Like, I had to set up the bureau, which in China is, like, a bureaucratic nightmare, and I was sort of, like, shuffling from government department to government department with, like, you know, 100 different documents and trying to get, like, you know, the chop or the seal that is so important in China set up and not having any idea how to do those things. And I rented a desk in a co-working space that had like bunk beds because Shenzhen is known <laughs> to be a city of like young workaholics who work 996, 9, 9am to 9pm, six, six days a week. And so all the co-working spaces had places you could nap in and just slowly tried to figure out what was going on. And it was also a very sprawling beat because I was the only person there. They were like, well, just can you cover mainland southern China? <laughs> so it was everything <laughs> from trade. So the US-China trade war was sort of starting up then. And there were a lot of manufacturing. So I was able to draw on some of my reporting and experience on the economics team because Guangdong province, where Shenzhen is, is, is a sort of export powerhouse and then also there was a massive tech story because these massive Chinese tech giants like Tencent and Huawei and DGI the world's largest drone company and BGI like I think it's like the world's largest genomics company and Ping'an the world's largest insurance company are all headquartered in Shenzhen so it was an enormous beat it was totally overwhelming but it was like an amazing place to be as sort of a young and hungry 20-something-year-old reporter. Yeah, yeah. And if memory serves, it wasn't long that you were there before, I guess, other publications woke up and were like, we would, could use somebody in Shenzhen <laughs> um, that, uh, <laughs> you know, no, nobody realizes until the first person does it. But uh, how, what happens next? How, how do you end up at the, the FT is next for you, right? Right. So I guess the FT also wanted to open a Shenzhen bureau. And so I think I was sort of in touch with them for a while. I knew some of the FT reporters in Beijing and they advertised for the South China correspondent position, asked me to apply for it. And uh, fortunately, I got it. And so the idea was I would be covering a slightly broader beat. So it would have been mainland southern China, like Reuters, but also Hong Kong and Macau, and then be based in Shenzhen and open the second international bureau <laughs> for a news organisation. Sorry, the second Shenzhen bureau for an international news organisation. That's funny. 
And, uh, okay. I guess, uh, yeah, it's basically the chronology from here. Uh, how long were you at FT? And I guess what were some of the big stories you covered while you were there? So I was at the FT for, I guess, a year and a half. So it was definitely shorter than I expected. But I guess we can get into that later. The biggest story I covered were the Hong Kong protests. So I started at the FT in early 2019. I came into Hong Kong to wait for my new journalist visa back to Shenzhen. I got it. And basically, like, the week I moved to open the Shenzhen bureau of the FT, street protests in Hong Kong broke out. And my boss called me and was like, we need you back in Hong Kong, because unlike at Reuters, where there are much more sort of siloed, defined beats, at somewhere like the FT, there are far fewer correspondents. And so each correspondent has like a much larger beat. And so I was sort of the lead reporter on Hong Kong, even though I had never lived in Hong Kong, knew nothing about Hong Kong, and had been hired really to focus on mainland southern China. Because at the time I was hired, I think... There was a feeling amongst my bosses that, you know, the Hong Kong story was kind of over and the real story was in Shenzhen. So it didn't matter that I didn't really have a background in Hong Kong. I could just, like, make it work and slowly learn. And it was more important that I had had experience and sources in Shenzhen than in Hong Kong. But it didn't work out like that at all. And basically... In June 2019, I came into Hong Kong and spent a lot of time in Hong Kong for the rest of the year covering these sort of pro-democracy protests. And, yeah, you wrote some uh, big pieces, I guess. They, they're called Big... You wrote a big read, maybe, for the FT, I seem to recall, on it, or maybe it was a magazine piece. Yeah, so there were... I guess the FT sort of has a few big slots. So I guess the biggest slot in the daily paper is is known as the big read. And so there were quite a few Hong Kong big reads looking at various aspects of the protest. So, you know, what does this mean for China? And what is the impact like internationally? And I think I wrote one on the rule of law and, you know, whether the Hong Kong protests threatened the rule of law in Hong Kong, which is, I think, what makes Hong Kong quite different from the rest of China and why we see so many international businesses in Hong Kong versus the mainland because of the certainty of contracts in Hong Kong. So I wrote quite a bit about that and I think I wrote a piece on Macau, which was another part of my beat and is sort of considered like, the way people in Hong Kong describe it, it's like from the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party, Macau is the good, good obedient child that does, <laughs> who does everything that, like, the party tells them to do. And Hong Kong is, like, the naughty child. So I think I wrote a big read looking at the dynamics between Macau and Hong Kong and the extent to which Hong Kong was going to be sort of forced in the direction of Macau. I guess one of the bigger pieces I wrote during the protest was a cover story for the FT Weekend magazine. And what I did was I followed a bunch of protesters for several months and tried to tell the story of the Hong Kong protests through them. So I followed um, a frontline protester, so the sort of a very, very young activists who were dressed in all black and would cover their faces and would they would often be the ones 
having the violent confrontations with the police. And then I sort of followed a few more moderate pro-democracy activists who were maybe lawyers or filmmakers who were trying to sort of agitate for democracy in different ways. And then I think I interviewed some mainland government officials and a mainlander who lived in Hong Kong about her perspectives of the protests because I'm not sure how much you know about Hong Kong, but there's there was a lot of anti-mainland hostility and discrimination leading up to 2019 and it really got worse during the protests when in fact I think a lot of mainland Chinese come to Hong Kong because they like that there at least at the time was freedom of speech and freedom of the press and freedom of protest and all these freedoms that they didn't have in the mainland and yet because of the dynamics between local Hong Kongers and mainlanders or people who were born and raised in the mainland, they, I think, end up often feeling extremely discriminated against and excluded from local Hong Kong society. And I wanted that perspective in my story as well. Yeah. And I I don't know about you, but at least from the outside, it seems like this is when, you know, your careers kind of seems to take off a bit. I mean, China is a big story, but the Hong Kong protests or whatever you want to call them like was probably a top one two three story of of the year globally like uh, people were really paying attention and yeah you did a lot of big good pieces so yeah I was kind of surprised when you moved on after a year and a half or however long you said it was so so you do this great work you know people are really following your work what happens that uh, you end up moving (laughs) Great question. So I definitely was not looking to move and I was really enjoying my time at the FT. You're right. It was, it felt like I, at Reuters, I don't know if uh, you ever came across a saying, but they called it the Holy Trinity, like being (laughs) the right time, the right place and the right beat. And if you get that once in your career, you're considered like extremely fortunate. And I sort of felt that I had that with, the protests in 2019 and it's it's really extraordinary because I remember agonizing over the decision of whether to leave Reuters to join the FT at the time and if I had stayed there's like no way I would have covered the Hong Kong protests because I mean as you know better than me Reuters has so many amazing correspondents in Hong Kong and I would have sort of been in Shenzhen throughout those protests probably feeling quite frustrated that I was missing the biggest story in China at the time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess The Economist... So, so growing up in Australia, we would often, like, watch the nightly news and I would read the daily Australian newspapers and then every so often I would buy a copy of The Economist and I just really loved it. And I guess there are a lot of aspects of the style of... sort of Economist-style journalism that really appeal to me. And so when the opportunity came up to apply for a China correspondent job at The Economist, I decided to just take it and see, see how it went. And I was very fortunate to get the job. And I wonder if I would have gotten the job if I hadn't been at the FT covering the Hong Kong protests throughout 2019. Because I think The Economist has a strong tradition of hiring from the FT. They're both like 
prominent British publications. So it just, it was very lucky. And there were a couple of reasons in the end I decided to go to The Economist. But one was, I think, in some ways, the FT is, at least my personal experience of FT was, it was kind of like being at Reuters on steroids. <laughs> like, we were expected to do all the daily breaking news that I did as a wire reporter at Reuters. But on top of that, you know, they wanted the second day analysis, they wanted the big reads, they wanted the magazine features. So it was an absolutely incredible experience. And in some ways, it was like, I think 2019 was one of those years where you learn like more in one year than you can learn in like five average years of your career. <laughs> it also, I was worried about how sustainable it would be. And I'm very interested in slow journalism or slower journalism, at least. As I was saying earlier, you know, I think there's actually like a hundred different types of journalism and, and I think different people are attracted to different types of journalism. And I, I've never really been a news hound, sort of. I've written a lot of daily news as sort of a means to an end because I love being a journalist and there's so much about journalism I love so much. But like daily news was, was not the main reason I'm a journalist. And so that was also quite appealing about The Economist, just to have more time to think and take a step back. Like, I guess the type of journalism we do is, is quite different. Sure, yeah, no, for definitely The Economist is pretty unique in journalism. So you've joined The Economist, and in your new job, what will be the format of it? Will it still be Southern China? Will you make a change? How's that going? So I was hired to be based in Beijing, but it's been 18 months or maybe more than 18 months since we submitted my application for a journalist visa to Beijing with The Economist and I still haven't gotten it. So I started working in Hong Kong for them and have basically been here ever since. It's been more than a year now. So yeah, it's, it's not ideal, definitely not ideal. I'm supposed to mostly report on mainland China but I can't actually go there. This is sort of a situation that now a lot of foreign correspondents who are supposed to be based in China are facing, or a lot of the correspondents at the American publications uh, were expelled, and a lot of us who are trying to get in can't get in. So that's been suboptimal, to say the least, although I guess just because of how The Economist works, I've ended up covering Hong Kong and sort of the fallout from the protests. And so having been here from pre-protests all the way through the protests, it's been a very, very interesting story to cover. And, and in some ways, I think having on-the-ground experience reporting in mainland China has really helped me understand what's happening in Hong Kong because I think what we're seeing is more and more of a convergence between many aspects of life in Hong Kong and many aspects of life in the mainland, even though the two are still very, very different in many ways. Out of curiosity, just in terms of like the quick shift in the environment and to how fast things clamped down and became like the mainland, or, or what was it exactly? Yeah, so I think my experience reporting the mainland has helped me more 
understand and analyse the fallout of the Hong Kong protests in 2019 rather than what happened in 2019. I mean, during the protests in 2019, I just, it was extraordinary to me having spent the last few years in the mainland where it's so difficult to protest. Like, you know, even a small group gathering can get shut down extremely quickly by the police. But, you know, in Hong Kong, we were seeing millions of people march through the streets and it just felt like a totally different world. Since the Communist Party has imposed this draconian national security law on Hong Kong, we've seen so many parts of Hong Kong society begin to resemble mainland China. And in fact, some of my contacts here who are activists are sort of now very, very closely studying how activists in the mainland operate and how they survive and what strategies they use, because I think they feel like that's the direction Hong Kong is heading. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I guess that kind of brings us up to present. Is there anything else you want to say about The Economist before we move on to the next parts of the interview? I guess one thing I would say is there's only maybe 130 correspondents at The Economist. And so we have these weekly meetings, or a meeting on Monday and a meeting on Friday where we all get onto Zoom, which I think is like a post-COVID thing, uh, to discuss the... Wait, everyone? Not everyone goes every week, but everyone's invited. Oh, wow. Usually there's about 100 people on the calls, and it's to discuss our leaders, as we call them, I guess sort of the editorials that are at the front of the paper... And I just really love that. Like, it's fascinating and the debates are often really, really interesting and it just feels like something that I would have never really been a part of at a place like Reuters or the FT because it's just, you know, so much bigger. You could not have everyone on Zoom debating about, like, what our stance is on what's happening in Afghanistan or what's happening with COVID in the US or China's hukou policy. Yeah, that's actually, I think, it's one of the very, one of the many unique aspects of The Economist. Yeah, that's very cool. I mean, 100 people even on Zoom, I imagine, it could be unwieldy, but uh, I guess, you know, it depends what the news of the week is, who, who is called upon to speak. I also must say, Zanny, our editor-in-chief, runs an extremely good meeting. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I guess to move on to the next section about stories, I usually like to start with a story that got away to start on a low note and end on a high note. So (laughs) is there any story that comes to mind that you wanted to do, you couldn't do it for whatever reason, either, you know, the reporting didn't go right, it didn't get past an editor, uh, you couldn't get the right people to talk to you? Uh, Does anything come to mind? Yeah, so when I was in Shenzhen for Reuters, I was pulled off the file for, I guess, six months. Like, basically, I was told, we want you to work on this investigation into this very, very high-profile Me Too case in China. And I worked with two reporters in New York. And in the end, we weren't able to stand it up, and so we didn't publish our story. But... It was around the time that Liu Changdong, who was the head of JD.com, which is one of, you know, the big Chinese tech 
giants, was accused of raping a Chinese international student at the University of Minnesota when he went to some like executive training program. And Reuters wanted to do this special report on what exactly happened and what it says about power in China. And so for several months, I sort of, I guess, did what you do when you're working on an investigation. It's like extremely unglamorous. And like, I went to like lots of offices in Shenzhen where people affiliated with him who were in Minnesota at the same time as him, you know, worked and tried to figure out what was happening. And I got rejected a lot. And I sort of cold called, I, I had to figure out how to track down the people around him that night who were allegedly complicit in the rape and try to figure out how to get in touch with them. And yeah, it was um, really, really tough, as you would expect, and really, really interesting. And actually, one part of the story was in Sydney, where, where I'm from, and I think I went home for Christmas one year and this guy, Liu Changdong, owns a sort of mansion in one of the fanciest suburbs in Sydney and I went out to that street and like went and spoke to all the neighbours and his next door neighbour let me into her house and they share like a both of their houses back onto Sydney Harbour and so like I was able to sort of see into his house and she spoke <laughs> about all the models that would show up late at night when he was in town and yeah it was it was really really interesting but incredibly difficult and so in the end we weren't able to pin it down and I think it was also around the time I, I left Reuters but I wish we could have I wish we had the reporting and I wish we could have done a sort of big deep investigation about like what actually happened and the fallout in China as well because uh, Liu Jingyao the woman who accused Liu Changdong of rape was attacked viciously on Chinese social media and a lot of our reporting showed that JD.com employed all kinds of people to smear her and to pay for prominent Chinese journalists to question her accounts and, and they released all kinds of edited videos on Chinese social media. So I think looking back, I feel like I learned a lot as I was reporting the story about China and about the difficulties of doing investigations there. So it, was all, it wasn't all for nothing, but, but I, it was definitely a story that got away. Yeah, wow. You must have been working with Ko Guiqing, is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, she was on, I'm not going to quote you the episode number, but people should also go check that one out. She talks about it a bit. She had gone to Minneapolis to dig around on that side of the story. But uh, yeah, that's a shame that uh, you just, uh, you had a lot of reporting, but it just didn't reach the level that Reuters felt you had proven it, or it was, was that more of it? Yeah, and I think these stories are incredibly difficult to stand up and I don't think any of us went in thinking it was going to be easy or we were necessarily going to publish but the more I reported it the more I spoke to different types of people the more I felt like it was a really really important story and it would have been great if if we'd been able to 
to stand it up and get it published. Did anybody ever write about this JD like smear campaigns? Is that a known thing or? So, yeah, I guess a lot of our competitors were chasing the story as well. And, and there's been like sort of bits and pieces, but no one has really like written a definitive investigation into, into what happened as far as I know. Sure. Sure. Okay. And then to move on to a high note, if you could pick a story you've done from any time in your career, tell us a little bit about it, how you got the idea or how it started, and take us through the process from start to finish, the story behind the story. Yeah, so one story that really stays with me is the story of basically the largest mass arrests of students in China since the massacre near Tiananmen Square in 1989. So in 2018, when I moved to Shenzhen with Reuters, I was supposed to cover manufacturing and tech and trade, and I did do that. But actually, there was this big political story that broke on my patch just as I was moving there. So these protests broke out in this factory called Jassic. It's a welding factory and workers there were trying to form an autonomous labor union because in China, workers are not allowed to form independent labor unions. All labor unions must be formed under the All China Federation of Trade Unions, which is the one legal trade union in China controlled by the Communist Party. And basically, People who work for the All China Federation of Trade Unions are civil servants, and they're not really there to advocate for workers' rights. Maybe sometimes they will incidentally help workers, but they're really there to work for the Communist Party and to ensure that the Communist Party is able to maintain its grip on power, ultimately. But there was this group of workers who were working under terrible conditions in this factory and decided to try to elect their own worker rep on this autonomous labour union that was still affiliated with the All China Federation of Trade Unions. And everyone involved at the factory got fired and they were connected to a couple of students from top universities who had actually decided to become factory workers because they were labour activists at heart and believed in working on the factory floor to understand the experiences of workers. And they had the networks to get students from all over the country, from China's top universities, you know, Peking University, Renmin University, and they all came to Shenzhen during their summer holidays to protest against the unfair treatment of, of these workers. And, I mean, being the only journalist, only... I was the only foreign journalist in the city at the time. I s started to go out to, to follow the protests. And a lot of the local Chinese journalists I knew were following every twist and turn of this story as well. But they had all been banned by their editors from going out to cover it. And their editors were obviously under pressure from the local propaganda departments and, and other authorities and had been told, like, do not report on these student protests. And I think the Communist Party really fears it when students and workers band together, sort of like in 1989, because the party purports to be the party of the workers, but in fact, you know, they're not. And when the, you have these very, very bright students who 
speak the language of the party. They know how to operate. They know how to use the language of the party to argue for these workers' rights alongside workers. I think that really terrifies the party. And so for several months, I sort of followed what was happening. And often what happens in China is the police will put pressure on landlords to kick people out if they're doing something the party doesn't like. So all the students and workers were living together in an apartment and they had to move several times because the landlords kept kicking them out. And eventually I would go to interview them and I would notice that there were cars with number plates from all over the country, which meant that like police from... Hebei province and Anhui province and Fujian province had all driven to Shenzhen because there were students from those specific districts in those provinces and the police there were, you know, trying to get those students to stop protesting. Their university lecturers were flown into Shenzhen to try to convince them to stop protesting. Their parents eventually were brought to Shenzhen and put in a hotel and, like, told that they were very bad parents and they hadn't raised their children properly and I would be with the students and factory workers as they were getting all these calls on WeChat and on their phones from their parents and teachers. Like, basically, the police were trying to put pressure on them through their family, which is, it's sort of a, been a tactic for a very long time used by the Communist Party. And then people started disappearing. So I interviewed one of the more prominent students, Shen Mengyu, a couple of days before she, her parents were sent to Shenzhen and, and she organized to have dinner with them. And then after dinner, as she was leaving the restaurant, she was like bundled into a car and driven away. And basically by the end of the summer, I remember going out to visit the students and workers. By that point, I think they'd moved four or five times and they were extremely eager to tell their story and they were very good with social media like they would post on WeChat and Weibo like all the different Chinese social media platforms to the point that actually one of the hashtags that started trending on Weibo was what's happening in Guangdong because universities around the country were told if you have any students in Guangdong like get them back to campus like no one is allowed to go to this province because I think the authorities were worried this was going to turn into some huge protest. And the students were telling me how there were lots of other students around the country who were intercepted at bus stations and train stations on their way to Shenzhen to try to join the protests. So there was a lot of support that I think the authorities sort of cut off. And I remember the day after there was a dawn raid on the apartment and all the students and workers were taken away. And to this day, we don't really know what has happened. Like, I have followed the story, and from what I can piece together, some of the more prominent people are still missing or, like, incommunicado, but others have been released into what are effectively open-air prisons. Like, they sort of have been given a job in their local a local government ministry in their town or city and someone in their team is told to watch them. They have to wear a watch at all times that tracks their movements. They're not allowed to have any 
social media on their phone except WeChat, which is monitored in China. They're told, like, do not contact anyone who was involved in those protests that summer and do not speak to any journalists. They're given assigned housing. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I haven't been in touch with anyone I interviewed that summer who was sort of directly involved in the protest because... I mean, it's impossible. They, they wouldn't talk to me, and, and I wouldn't want to put anyone at risk like that. Right. I, I guess just to back up and uh, to help people who aren't familiar with China picture it, when you say uh, protests, I mean, wh- what was this exactly? Was it people with signs outside of a factory? Was it sit-ins in a factory? Was it a more virtual sort of protest? Uh, how, what form exactly did it take? Yeah, so I think initially there were protests in the factory and outside the factory with the workers. And then those protests grew as students from around the country came and they would protest outside police stations where people had been detained or in, like, public squares and shopping malls near the factory to try to, like, draw attention to what was going on. And then eventually because they were under so much pressure and every time they showed up somewhere, all the police would be there, they were just protesting on social media, trying to get the message out on WeChat or whatever other means they could. They sort of were quite savvy and were able to scale the Great Firewall and post videos on YouTube and things like that. It was, we're talking, you know, we're not talking massive, massive protests that like you would see in a democracy, right? I mean, I think in your story, like 50 people were arrested or disappeared or something like that. So we're not hundreds of people we're talking about. No, there were only about 50 people, mostly in the one apartment. I think some had left by the end of the summer. So by the time they were all detained there were about 50 of them i think and yeah the story kind of highlights some of the most dystopian things about china in terms of how you can be released but monitored how you can be disappeared and nobody knows what happens to you how they can fly your parents to another city tell them how they were bad parents and then coach them on how to try to you know uh, text message their children to get them to give up on this protests i mean it's pretty wild i guess the one lingering question you did say you still don't know what happened to many of the people you know one of the stories you wrote the main character is surnamed uh, ua or the main subject oh yeah ua sin uh did she ua sin do you know what happened to her as she disappeared or or what happened in the end i'm i'm not sure so i have asked about her but um I'm not really sure what happened. So in that situation where, you know, you're interviewing her and she's being very open and uh, by Chinese standards, very outspoken, even if, you know, some of the things like uh, standing against uh, sexual misconduct, uh, you know, shouldn't be controversial. But in in China, though, the way she was talking about things can be. I mean, you're interviewing her. Does does this give you pause? Does this, I mean, is it the type of thing where, you know, based on the nature of the type of protest she's doing and what she's doing on social media, that whether or not you report it, it won't, you know, it won't be the difference maker and whether she gets arrested, for example, like one, one way or another, she's going to speak out. 
Or, uh, I mean, did you have doubts about whether you should be interviewing these th- people because it could put them in danger? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. And it's something I constantly grapple with as a journalist covering China. So I think there's, I mean, I think in, in these situations, I'm always trying to make sure that the person I'm interviewing, like, totally understands what the risks might be if I use their name in the story. And so often people will speak to me off the record. And a lot of the stories I did about these student worker protests are based on unnamed sources. But many of the students and workers were extremely keen for media coverage and were like constantly texting me, inviting me to protests and things like that. And so I think in those situations where they're so explicit and they're also on Chinese social media themselves, I think that there is a lot of, I don't know what the right word is, like dignity. I I want to sort of give them all the dignity that they rightly deserve and, and cover them the way they wish to be covered. And if that means using their names, if that, if that means they want me to use their names, then then I will do that. Sure, yeah, that, that makes sense. And, I mean, reading the story, you know, I never thought that, you know, this is what got this person picked up by the police. So it was very clear that they very much wanted to get their message out and they went in knowing what the consequences could be. Oh, so the reason I, I um, sort of feel like this is a story I am proud of is I guess if I hadn't been there no one else was really covering it because there were no other journalists who were able to cover it so I really feel like it's important for journalists to be on the ground writing these stories just if for no other reason except for there to be a record and so I'm proud that I at least contributed in a tiny way to that record. Right. And yeah, in China, it's particularly important to be there on the ground because you hear these statistics from people like, uh, what is it, China Labor Bulletin and these type of organizations about, you know, hundreds or thousands of protests happen every year. But the issue in China is they're so good at uh, suppressing information about them that literally unless you're in that geography, you probably won't know what's going on. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, those are a great couple of stories, and I'll post links to all of the stories you mentioned in the podcast description, so people should go check them out. So if there's nothing else you'd like to add, we'll move on to the lightning round next. How does that sound? Sure. So the lightning round is more fast-paced, fun questions. You can feel free to respond at whatever length you want. Don't need to feel rushed, but they're just, you know, briefer than tell me the whole story of your life. So do you feel ready? I'm ready. The first question is, what is a publication that you think is a must-read for covering your beat or what you cover? And I'm more looking to know what, you know, people in the know about China or Hong Kong or wherever look at rather than something, you know, everyone knows. If there's some particularly good publication that you like to follow for, for news on China or what you cover. So I read a lot of newsletters about China and I really like a few Chinese publications. And so one I look at a lot and I get a lot of story ideas from and it really helps me better understand China, especially now that I'm not in the mainland, is Duan, uh, which is an independent Chinese language 
news organization that was started by a mainland journalist who had lived in Hong Kong for many, many years, and she worked with a lot of correspondents and editors from Taiwan. So I think the original editing team was a third Hong Kongers, a third mainlanders, and a third Taiwanese. And so they brought this very unique perspective to covering the mainland, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, as well as sort of any stories that might be interesting around the world for Chinese language readers. Cool. And how is it spelled? D-U-A-N? Uh, so it, in English, it's called initium, and in Chinese, it's duan chuan mei. Initium? Initium, yeah. I-N-I-T-I-U-M. Interesting. Okay, and then uh, the next question is, what is a publication that is vaguely journalistic in nature? It can be any medium, so text, audio, video, but kind of journalistic that you look at just for fun, something you just kind of enjoy consuming. I am really into podcasts, so there are a couple of podcasts I really like, including The Ezra Klein Show. And I just love the way he interviews and the way he asks questions. And I also really like the depth you can get in a podcast. And it's, I guess, much harder in print unless you're writing extremely long form. Right. Yeah. I should check him out, see if I can learn anything, interview tactics. Um, <laughs> you're not bad yourself, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have my format and I, I stick to it. Uh, and then the next question is, what is the best journalistic article piece or, again, whatever medium that you have consumed recently and it cannot be from the publication you work for? <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe this is, I've already answered the question, but um, I really, really like Chinese language podcasts as well. And there are some amazing Chinese language podcasts which do really, really brilliant Journalism, especially given the current environment where it's becoming tougher and tougher to do reporting in China, not only as like a foreign journalist, but, but especially actually as a Chinese journalist. So many of my friends who are incredibly talented Chinese journalists have left the industry, but a few have started their own podcasts. And I mean, the stories that they do on these shows are really, really fascinating about all kinds of aspects of Chinese society that I would never know about otherwise because I think Chinese state media and even the sort of quasi-state media is very much more constrained. So, I mean, there have been episodes on one podcast I really love called Gusha FM or Story FM in, in English about, like, a man describing how his father, who suffered from mental illnesses, was poisoned to death by fellow villagers. Another about a Chinese documentary maker who tells about his experience of being featured in a gay porn film and uh, all kinds of podcasts and other episodes. Another one was about these agencies that were set up specifically to help women break up their husbands' relationships with their mistresses. <laughs> And I noticed that the, this podcast in particular, Gush FM, is very interested in stories about Chinese people around the world, especially as like more and more people from China go out and about around the world to work and study and, and travel abroad. So they do interviews with like Chinese people in Syria and Afghanistan. I listened to one recently about 
a Chinese Muslim man who went to Pakistan and like within a couple of weeks married a woman there. It's just like incredibly diverse and the stories are really touching often or funny and interesting. Like I often find myself, I'll be cooking and listening to a podcast and like start crying because I'm very sentimental and cry easily. <laughs> that sounds amazing though. I mean, yeah, I mean the Chinese media can be very drab if you don't know where to look. So I'll check that out. That sounds great. The next question is, is there any particular subject matter that isn't related to your job that you geek out about? Uh, so I am very geeky about this thing called effective altruism. I, I don't know if you've heard about it before. Huh, no. What is so it? it's, it's sort of this like relatively new movement or philosophy, or in some ways just a question of like, how do you do the most good effectively? And there's a lot of like really interesting information online. There's been a couple of books written about it. Actually, Vox has a vertical that covers it. It's called Future Perfect, and they write all kinds of stories about like topics and issues they think are important but are undercovered in mainstream media. So things like climate change and animal welfare and they were covering uh, pandemics before covid so I really like reading and listening to podcasts about effective altruism. And I guess also it's kind of personal in a way because I love journalism a lot. But one thing I do struggle with sometimes is, you know, how much of an impact do we really make or do I really make in my day-to-day -day job as a journalist? And so I sometimes get very geeky and go down rabbit holes thinking about this issue through the framework of effective altruism. Cool. Yeah, no, that it was completely not on my radar. Uh, I'd never heard of it. That's great. If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? I would say the journalists who exposed Harvey Weinstein and launched the Me Too movement. So I think Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey at the New York Times, just because of the impact it's had on society. I guess to my previous point of sometimes wondering if what I'm doing is able to even in a tiny way have any kind of impact. Um, I feel like they definitely have had a huge impact and I can see it everywhere, not, like, not only from my own experiences as a reporter in China and seeing how influential the Me Too movement has been in China, even though the party keeps cracking down on it and there's so much pressure on Chinese feminists and activists, you can really see how... Chinese society is slowly changing and there's more and more awareness of the sort of systemic sexism within society. And I think there's lots of reasons for that, but I'm sure that the global Me Too movement is one of the reasons. And then I, I also see it like in the places I work. Like I think at Reuters pre-Me Too, there wasn't really much awareness of the gender pay gap and it was very, very hard to have discussions about it. And I think that me Too really changed things. Not that everything is fine now at Reuters, but at least it became more of a topic of discussion and, and something that I think managers couldn't shy away from the way they, they previously might have. Right, yeah. Two journalists that definitely had a huge impact. What's the coolest place or situation your job has gotten you into, you know, sort of a pinch me, I can't believe this is my job or my life that I 
got to do this weird or cool or strange or interesting thing? So I think I mentioned earlier that I used to cover the China-North Korea relationship, um, and I did eventually go to North Korea with Reuters to cover one of the big sort of annual parades. But in a way, like, yes, it was, like, fascinating to be in North Korea, but I don't know if it was, like... I actually found that uh, my time reporting on the Chinese border was in some ways more interesting and I would I would have more like pinch me I can't believe this is my life moments on that border I think partially because I went much more regularly like I was sort of going at least once a month for probably I don't know a year and a half two years and it's like a very long border it's like 1,400 kilometers long so there was a lot to explore and I initially had no sources but slowly built up sources and and they just sort of took me to meet really interesting people told me really fascinating stories and like North Korea is right there it's like I don't know if you've been but it's like you know two meters three meters in front of you and so many people's lives there are like so intertwined with North Korea and so people would say you know when when it's winter and the river freezes over they would previously not now like walk across the river and see their relatives on the other side or their friends and yeah it just I think reporting on the border of North Korea was very very surreal in a way and it was a really good experience to have as like a sort of younger reporter because I think I learned a lot in that year and a half but I had to really figure things out I'd go by myself and I'd have to figure out like who to talk to, how to find stories, and how to sort of get people to trust me and build longer-term relationships so I could go back to the same sources over and over again to cover all kinds of things. Um, And I guess one story that really sticks with me is the chief China photographer at the time and I, we drove the length of the border just before I moved to Shenzhen, I think. So we spent about a week driving from one end to the other and stopping at towns and villages and random sort of remote places along the way to report and take photos. And that road trip, I think, will sort of stay with me for the rest of my life. It was pretty crazy and and very cool. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's great opportunity. Like, it's the kind of thing that when you're a student and if you had heard you were going to be doing that however many years from now, you would be like, sweet, my life must be awesome. Like, I, you know, <laughs> we were, I, there was a period where we would kill for assignments like that, you know. Um, I mean, so. yeah, I guess it was like, not again, it's always like never as glamorous as you think it might be. Like, right. it was freezing a lot of the time and like, the police would often pull us aside. And at one point we were like, there was one, actually there's one part of the border we weren't able to drive along because there were like military checkpoints and they wouldn't let us drive ahead. Uh, What's your most embarrassing journalism related story? So something that's happened in the course of your work. Yeah. So I don't feel like I can pin down one particular moment because I feel like I'm just constantly embarrassed, uh, as a journalist. (laughs) Um, so I don't know if this is, maybe lots of journalists have said this to you, so it's not very interesting, but I really feel like one of the most important skills to possess as a journalist is to having a thick skin. 
that having been said, I think it's very possible to like cultivate a thick skin while also being able to deeply feel embarrassment. Um, <laughs> and I actually have a technique of coping with like all the embarrassing things I do in just like a single day as a journalist. So at the end of like a tough day out reporting where, you know, I've been rejected multiple times and people have like looked at me like I am insane and, you know, someone has like held, clutched her handbag tighter because she thinks I'm about to rob her because like why else would I be coming to talk to her? I go back to my hotel room. This is often on a reporting trip. I get under my doona or quilt, I guess, as you call them in America. Right. And like, I curl up in a ball and I rock back and forth and moan and cringe about like all the embarrassing things that I have had to do today in the course of like reporting out a story. <laughs> so yeah, that's my answer. I don't know if, if that's adequate. <laughs> no, that's, that's good. That's good. Maybe, yeah, maybe I should do that. Concentrate it in that one period and get it out rather than, yeah, thinking back and uh, wondering how badly I embarrassed myself um, <laughs> idly over the course of a long period. And then what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? It could be fiction or nonfiction as long as it has some tangential relationship to journalism. I, I, I don't know if this is too tangential, but I just finished reading Down and Out in Paris and London by George Orwell, which I, I just loved. It's about poverty in Paris and London, and I think it's like one of the best pieces of explanatory journalism I've ever read. So he actually like writes about living in poverty in Paris and working in like incredibly shocking conditions in hotels and restaurants. And then the second half of the book is about his life as a tramp in London. So I guess he, it's not like about a journalist, but it was a piece of explanatory reporting that I just thought was amazing. Yeah, and if George Orwell himself features heavily in it, he was a journalist in addition to doing other things. And then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? And qualifications aside in the sense that uh, don't think about, you know, having to study or having a talent, it, you know, could be an astronaut, a, uh, an athlete, whatever. So I love public transport. Like I love riding on buses and subways and I'm just like fascinated by how public transport works and the, what it, how it impacts the city or lack thereof impacts the city. So I sort of would love to be a bus driver. Uh, but if not a bus driver, I also love group activities and I love like being a part of something bigger than me. So I would love to be in musicals, even though I have no talent for like singing and dancing, but I feel like being in the chorus of a musical would be pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, great. Well, this has been great, and it's uh, great talking to you, Sulin. So I'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much, Jake. It's been really fun. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Sulin Wong, a correspondent for The Economist based in Hong Kong. I'll post links to some of the things Sulin talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. 
If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write it a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode on Sunday, October 10th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.